going to uh, turn to the scripture together, so you please uh, take your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Ephesians 2, we're going to be reading verses uh, 1 through uh, 10 this evening, we're just going to step out of the uh, gospel of uh, Matthew so that we can give uh, some thought to uh, our uh, heritage in the uh, Reformation, being a, a Reformed church, Presbyterian church, finding our uh, heritage in the work of God and the Reformation of the 16th century, and I uh, want to spend some time tonight in uh, giving thought to a, a passage of Scripture uh, that indeed is very uh, central for us as we think about uh, what it means to be a Sovereign Grace Church. That's the name of our church, after all, Sovereign Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and so it's good for us to remember uh, who we are. And so I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is the ever-living word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could sing together, not our will, uh, but your will be done. We thank you for the prayer of the the Lord Jesus as he taught his disciples to pray. Uh, And so we are taught to pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in, in heaven, that more and more in our own life, in your church, uh, in the world in which we live, that we would see more and more people bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, more and more of your professing people uh, living according to your way, bringing glory uh, to your name. And so, Lord, that is, our, that is our prayer. And so we thank you for this means of grace you've given us tonight, that again, we can open your word And we pray, Lord, that you would be indeed at work in us by your Holy Spirit, making this word effectual uh, to each one who's come tonight. Challenge us, convict us, comfort us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there is a a Latin phrase you may have heard of that is often uh, brought out uh, near Reformation Day. Uh, It has often been shortened to the simple a Latin phrase, semper reformanda. Have you heard that phrase? Semper reformanda. It uh, means always uh, reforming. 
Uh, many different people adopt this phrase of Semper Reformanda, uh, including theological uh, liberals, that is, those who don't really believe the Bible. Uh, they also uh, adopt this phrase. The theological liberal uses it to mean, this Semper Reformanda, always reforming, that there must be constant change in the church. There needs to be doctrinal change. There needs to be uh, worship change. There needs to be vision, vision change as well. Pastor, uh, should we be showing movies in worship? Semper Reformanda, says the pastor. Pastor, is offering lottery tickets to neighbors if they'll come to worship a good idea? Semper Reformanda, always reforming. Pastor, I, I appreciated your thoughts this morning on the rising price of oil and higher ocean levels in Madagascar, but is that really in the Bible? Uh, Semper Reformanda, you see. Um, we always need to be uh, changing. Um, now, the saying first appeared in 1674 in a devotional book, apparently by Jodocus von Lodenstein. A uh, wonderful name for you to know, Jodocus von Lodenstein. Uh, he was known as a theologian of the Dutch Second Reformation, it was called, or the Further Reformation, a group of Dutch Puritans, as they were known, who believed that the church had not gone far enough in seeing Reformation or shaped according to the word in the lives of God's people. Uh, and it's important to see the entirety of uh, Van Lodenstein's phrase. It goes like this in its entirety. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, secundum verbi dei. That is, the church is reformed and always being reformed uh, according to uh, the word of God. So there's three parts to it, really. The church that is reformed, in other words, something has happened here in the 16th century. There's been a return to the true gospel, uh, the doctrine of God's grace alone, uh, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, based on Scripture alone. So we have, uh, the, the, the church has been recovered in its true doctrine. That church is always being uh, reformed. In other words, that church is always uh, in need of constant molding and shaping uh, and further uh, sanctification and uh, You'll note there that in that phrase, it's uh, always being reformed. That is, we are always having uh, something done to us. That is, we're always being shaped and molded by God. How? Well, according to the Word of God. Not pastor's whims, not congregational desires, or fluctuating politics, uh, but according to the Word of God. So that's why this was, uh, became a uh, motto of those who loved the Reformation, appreciated the Reformation, what was recovered at the Reformation, that this was what the Reformation was all about, being constantly uh, shaped by the Word. And so that's why we remember the church historical event known as the Reformation of the 16th century. This is why we can joyfully identify ourselves as Reformed Christians today. Uh, and this is why we understand that the Reformation is not simply a thing of the past, uh, but a pressing need today and always. Uh, because it means to always be reformed according to the Word of God. And so tonight we want to come to a passage of Scripture that is vital, foundational uh, to uh, reformed believers. In some ways, there is nothing uh, more precious to grasp in Scripture uh, than the truths of these ten verses uh, in Ephesians 2. And because tomorrow is Reformation Day... Uh, the day we recall, 505 years ago, uh, on October 31st, 1517, the Lord used Martin Luther and his 95 theses or 95 statements uh, to spark a debate in Wittenberg, Germany, about what forgiveness really is and 
what repentance really is and what the heart of the gospel really is. So 505 years ago tomorrow, that happened, and that would lead and spark what came to be known as the Protestant Reformation, which is our heritage. That's our heritage as Reformed and Presbyterian believers. And so it's good for us to spend some time in this passage, because this passage uh, is so pivotal to the Reformers' understanding of the sovereign grace of God. And so, in Ephesians 2, very simply tonight, three headings, uh, past, present, and future, or we could say uh, Reformation then, uh, Reformation now, uh, and Reformation uh, always. Uh, First of all, Reformation then. We need, uh, the Bible says, as believers, uh, we need to have a look uh, at the past. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We're talking about the past. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The first thing that uh, we find here in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, clearly describe for us what life is like uh, apart from uh, Jesus Christ. What is the state of man apart from the working of the sovereign grace of God? Who were we? Who were you? And in the context of the Reformation, we could say, what kind of world was it in which the Reformation was, was born? Now you notice there's some key words here in this description of the past, what you once were. Uh, Some key words uh, would include words like this, dead. That's one word. Um, You were dead. Uh, Not sick, not on the wrong path, needing a slight course change. Dead. That's one word. Uh, Following the course of this world. That is, all about being conformed to the pattern of the world of sin that is uh, all around you, following uh, the prince of the power of the air. There's another important phrase, that is, uh, we were in bondage. Uh, This is talking about Satan. This is talking about the one who uh, is now at work, the Bible says, in the sons of disobedience, a clear reference here to the work of the the evil one, and uh, that was us, following along his path. Why? Well, because the Bible says, apart from Jesus... Uh, we are in bondage to him and in slavery to sin. Uh, Passions of our flesh, uh, Paul mentions, living in the passions of our flesh, the desires of the body and the mind. Now, if you think about that carefully, you will catch in these uh, phrases as Paul's describing the past. Uh, He speaks about the world. He speaks about the devil. uh, And he speaks about the flesh, uh, that we are, uh, you know, we're following the course of the world, prince of the power of the air, and following the passions of our, of our flesh. And, here's another word, children of wrath. That is, under the, under the holy displeasure of God against sin, like the rest of mankind. So this is what our Reformed fathers in the faith called a total uh, depravity. This is what you were, says Paul. Uh, This is the past. Uh, Not that uh, we are entirely depraved. The Bible does not tell us that we are as bad as we possibly could be, 
But the Bible does tell us, and this passage tells us, that we are depraved, that is, we are sinful in every aspect of our lives. That is, the totality of our lives, in our mind, in our thinking. Remember this passage says, following the passions of our body and the mind. Right? So sin has affected our lives, our mind, our heart, and will. So just like yeast, as the Bible says elsewhere, works through the whole batch of dough, that's how sin has worked through the whole life of man, right? In his totality, affected by sin. Now, here's the thing. Notice that Paul, in Ephesians 2, is speaking to believers in the church at Ephesus. Believers. And Paul reminds us here that it is vital. It is vital, he says, for believers in Jesus Christ to know from where they have come. You were dead, says Peter, says Paul. Think about Sir Edmund Hillary. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Everest. Um, that's a, I think it was Everest. Um, there's been a number of documentaries. But if you think about Sir Edmund Hillary as he gets to the top of Mount Everest, no doubt one of the things, well, in the movie anyway, one of the things he did is, as he would, uh, he would, uh, you know, in Mount Everest, you would look around, right, at the other, uh, at the other mountain peaks to be sure. But he also... He also would look down to the depths from which he had come, right? He had come a long way from the depths. So the believer, says Paul, needs to always remember the depths from which he has come. In fact, it could be fair to say that you never really see the depths from which you have come until you are on the heights. Around the middle of the 20th century, a Dutch theologian by the name of G.C. Burkauer published a series of 15 volumes on various theological subjects, providence, election, person of Christ, work of Christ, return of Christ, and many more. So they, they, I have to pack them, but they're still sitting on my bookshelf right now, filling up a whole shelf. And I was looking at it actually yesterday, this, this, this uh, shelf of Burkauer. Funny thing is, one of these volumes has always stuck out because it's about twice as fat as the others. Uh, it's a volume simply called Sin. <laughs> it's appropriate, isn't it? Um, so I look at this whole theology, big fat book, Sin, right in the middle of all that theology. Well, in that book, Burkauer has this to say about sin. It's evident, he says, that the nature of sin can only be seen within the depths and fullness, fullness of God's revelation. The necessary recognition of the giver of that law only by knowing Him do we comprehend the nature of sin as unbelief and enmity, transgression and unrighteousness, disobedience and stubbornness. We are saying that we must know the true God if we are to know what sin in reality is. Lawlessness and disobedience can only be contemplated when we appreciate how good the scepter is which God has raised over mankind. This is, he says, what Herman Bovink meant when he wrote that the knowledge of sin comes through the gospel in a still stronger measure than through the law. The message, he says, of God's grace streams into man's lost estate and removes the blinders from his eyes. Thus, it enables him to see the glory of God. And in that way, the great mystery of sin is both revealed and condemned. His love, compassion, and redemption 
are in strident contrast to the inflexibility and rebellion of his people. So you're saying there that we can't really see the nature of sin until the gospel comes and we see the glory of his grace. You see, you can't really see the the depths from which you've come until you're on the heights. So Paul says, you believers need to remember. This seems to be what the Apostle Paul is after. Um, Just consider how chapter 1 of Ephesians ends. You might know that Ephesians 1 ends with the uh, Apostle Paul praying for the church. He's uh, uh, praying that they would come to to grow in their understanding of of the gospel. Let's listen in just a minute here to the Apostle Paul as he prays. Verse 15 of chapter 1. For this reason... Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, what's he praying? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. And then this, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and then this, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That was his prayer. Paul wants believers to know the riches of his glorious inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of his power. So he recognizes their faith and love, the hope to which they've been called, but he unapologetically is praying for them that they would know something and know it better. That is the glorious riches and the immeasurable greatness. Immeasurable greatness of God's power to those who believe. What does that tell me? What should that tell you? Uh, You need to know God better. I need to know God better. You're not done. The Bible says, you're not done. There is more to learn. There is more to see. Uh, There is more to experience of the wonder and power and riches and glory of God. And now how does he do it? Well, that's an interesting thing because chapter 2 starts by taking them back for a little history lesson. In order to appreciate uh, the glorious riches, he first starts with their past. And he says to them, you are not always what you are now. You weren't born this way. Do you remember? Do you remember, says Paul? Do you remember from from where you've come? Do you remember that you were born in sin? Do you remember that you were by nature, that is simply by birth, being born original sin, by nature, you were an object of God's just wrath? Do you remember that? Do you remember that there was nothing in you, nothing you had done that could ever commend you to God because you were dead? Do you remember that apart from Christ, says Paul, you were like like the rest of mankind? Do you remember that there used to be no Orthodox Presbyterian church? Do you remember that there used to be no Presbyterian church? Did you know that there was a time when indulgences were routinely sold in the street to sin and guilt-burdened men and women? According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, an indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed, 
gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. So are you duly disposed? Have you met the conditions? Have you looked to the action of the church? Are you hoping in the satisfaction of Christ and the saints? As if Christ's uh, work was not enough. This uh, was the world in which the Reformation was born. This was the world in which these verses needed to be heard from Hebrews chapter 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you remember, says Paul, what you were, dead in sin, trusting in yourself without hope? That was then. That was the past uh, for the believer. Well, what about today? Uh, Reformation now. Well, Paul takes us to a look at the, uh, a look at the present in verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Dead in sin, the Bible says, but grace comes. The Christian life, according to the Apostle Paul, is a life dominated by this thought. By grace, you have been saved. The Christian life is dominated by this thought. I am uh, the recipient uh, of the undeserved mercy and favor of God. So how do we get from dead in sin to saved by grace? How do we get from the depths to the heights? How do we get from where we were uh, to where we are? How do we get from the past to the present? How do we get from a medieval world steeped in superstition and darkness to the spreading of the gospel at the time of the Reformation? Well, I haven't been there, but I've heard that in Reformation Park in Geneva, Switzerland, there's a large Reformation wall. And it has statues depicting, of course, Calvin and William Farrell and Beza and Swingley and John Knox and, and many others. And carved in stone, apparently, there at the park are the words written in Latin, one of the many models of the Reformation in the 16th century, uh, the Latin phrase, post tenebris lux, or after darkness, light. It was used of course, to illustrate God's gracious revealing of the gospel, true gospel, after centuries of corruption in the Roman Catholic Church. So rather than a gospel that we just heard about indulgences, right? Well, if you've got the right disposition, um, you might be able to draw upon the treasury of of Christ and the saints, if the the action of the church. So instead of of, of a a gospel of works or a gospel only through, uh, available through the offices of the Roman Catholic Church, Uh, The Reformation made plain, once again, a gospel of salvation by by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And so after darkness, you see, after darkness, 
light. Now, the idea here, of course, is that a time, in a time uh, of great, deep darkness in the 16th century world, light uh, broke in like the sun, blazing in all its glory. Post tenebrous Luke's. You were dead, says Paul, uh, but, uh, but God. And like verses 1 to 3, which describe for us our state apart from Christ and what we once were, verses 4 to 6 speak of what we are now in the light of who God is and what God's done. Did you catch the words? Words like speaking of God himself. Being, uh, being uh, rich in mercy could be translated being, being full of mercy. Uh, great love with which he uh, loved us. You remember, by the way, that as you read through the Bible, never, never does the Bible say why God loved you. It only says that he loved you. He chose to love you, whether it's the Israelites or whether it's the New Testament church. Great love with which he loved us. Uh, well, made us alive, raised us up, seated us with him. You have been saved, says Paul, by grace, the grace of God. And so, so the idea here is imagine being transported uh, from the heart of Death Valley here in California uh, to the top uh, of Pikes Peak in Colorado, 280 feet below sea level at uh, Badwater Basin, 14,115 feet, Pikes Peak. I've been at both, actually, come to think of it. I don't know why we did, but we did go to Death Valley one, one winter with the kids. And then uh, Josiah and I one day uh, went up to the top of Pike's Peak. You know, the top of Pike's Peak, you get out of your car, at least for me and I think for Josiah too, we could barely breathe. We were up, uh, we were up so high, it was hard to breathe. We'd get down. It was just too much. So high. You walk into our home on the right-hand side in our entranceway, you'll find a picture, I think it's still on the wall, uh, is given to Lisa by a friend. has just two words uh, printed largely on it, but God. Just two small words containing a whole world of, of theology because those two words bridge the chasm between what we once were and what we are now, between a world of darkness and a world of of light, a world of works, righteousness, hopelessness, uh, to, a, to a world of, of gospel and freedom and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. These two words describe the difference between then and now. They, these two words describe the reality of how Reformation comes, right? The world was in darkness, uh, but God, that's how the Reformers understood it. The church was corrupt, uh, but God. Gospel was covered by uh, layers of hypocrisy and superstition, but God. And these words, friends, describe your transition, my transition from death to life. This is what you need to understand. This is what Paul is saying. I was dead in sin, but God made me alive. I was following the ways of the world, but God saved me. I, uh, like the rest, an object of God's wrath, but God raised me up and seated me with Christ 
I was a God-rejecting, hell-deserving, self-aggrandizing sinner, but God saved me by His grace and His grace alone. You might say to yourself, well, wait a minute, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, Well, that may be true. And who put you in a Christian home? Who put you in in a home where you would be taught the gospel? Well, that itself, you see, was the grace of God. But even if you grew up in a, in a Christian home, you still had a heart of sin. So who eventually, even in that Christian home, uh, took that, that heart of sin and made it a, a heart beating with love for God? God did. But God, the Apostle Paul would summarize what the heart of the Christian conviction is. But by the grace of God, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am. His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's what the Reformation is all about. The sovereign grace of God. O.T. Alice was a professor of Old Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary early in the 20th century. He recalls the marriage of his colleague at Princeton, uh, the great B.B. Warfield, to his wife, Annie. This is what he wrote. In his distinguished and eminently successful career, he's talking about Warfield, there was an element of tragedy. After graduating from the seminary at the age of 25, that's Warfield, he had married and he had taken his wife into Germany, a honeymoon in which he studied at Leipzig. On a walking trip in the Hartz Mountains, they were overtaken by a terrific thunderstorm. It was such a shattering experience for Mrs. Warfield. She never fully recovered from the shock to her nervous system and was more or less an invalid during the rest of her life, says Alice. I used to see them walking together, that is, Annie and Dr. Warfield. I used to see them walking together, and the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her. They had no children. During the years spent at Princeton, he rarely, if ever, was absent for any length of time. Mrs. Warfield required his constant attention and care. J. Gresham Machen, one of the fathers of the OPC, he was a student at Princeton under Warfield about this time, said this about Mrs. Warfield, I have faint recollections of her walking up and down in front of the house in the early years of my Princeton life, but even that diversion has long been denied her. I never spoke to her. Her trouble has been partly nervous, and she has seen hardly anyone except Dr. Warfield. But she remained, they say, until the end, a very brilliant woman. Dr. Warfield used to read to her during certain definite hours every day. For many, many years, said Machen, he has never been away from her more than two hours at a time. Now, was this Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, caring daily for his invalid wife, who wrote this about what the Reformation and what came to be called Calvinism was all about? This is what he wrote. Think now, never left the side of his wife as an invalid. Perhaps, said Warfield, the simplest statement of it is the best. That is Calvinism, that it lies in a profound apprehension of God in his majesty with the inevitably accompanying poignant realization of the exact nature of the relation sustained to him by the creature as such, and particularly by the sinful creature. He who believes in God without reserve and is determined, listen to what he says, and is determined that God shall be God to him in all his thinking, feeling, willing, in the entire compass of his life activities, intellectual, moral, spiritual, Throughout all his, listen to what he says, throughout all his individual social 
And religious relations, remember his wife is an invalid. Is, he says, by the force of that strictest of all logic, which presides over the outworking of principles into thought and life, by the very necessity of the case, says Warfield, that is a Calvinist, that God shall be God to him. Evangelical religion, said Warfield, reaches stability only when, listen to what he says, only when the sinful soul rests in humble, self-emptying trust, purely on the God of grace, as the immediate and sole source of all the efficiency which enters into its salvation. Whoever believes in God, said Warfield, whoever recognizes in the recesses of his soul his utter dependence on God, whoever in all his thought of salvation, listen to this, hears in his heart of hearts the echo of the soli deo gloria of the evangelical profession, that is to the glory of God alone, by whatever name he may call himself, says Warfield, or by whatever intellectual puzzles his logical understanding may be confused, Calvinism recognizes as implicitly a Calvinist. That is simply echoing the, uh, the truths that John Calvin himself wrote of. But isn't that great? Whoever says Warfield, he cares for his wife. Whoever in all his thought of salvation hears in his heart of hearts the echo of the soli dea gloria, that is, glory to God alone. That, he says, that's a Calvinist. That's someone who is thankful for the Reformation. That's echoing in his heart. Glory to God alone. Does that echo in your heart? Even if you're caring for your invalid wife all her years? It's about his majesty, depending on his his grace, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Because you know, why? Well, because you know uh, that except for that but God, except for his grace, there's only death. But God made you alive. Yes, the world seems dark, but God. Yes, the church often seems to be compromising, but God. Yes, eyes are shut ears closed, hearts are hard, children are wandering from the Lord, churches are empty. But God, don't ever forget, says the Apostle Paul. Past, present, quickly, future. Reformation then, Reformation now, Reformation always. What does the future hold? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. So all this has happened, verse 7, so that, so saved by God's grace, even saved by grace, so that, verse 7, in the coming ages, he, that's God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not your own doing, gift of God, not a result of works. No one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand uh, that we should walk in them. So dead in sin, alive in Christ, why? Well, there's a so that here in these verses. There seems to be two main answers uh, to that question. We'll mention the second reason first. This grace has come to you, verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. You know, the Greek word for workmanship is poema, from which we get the English word poem. Uh, This is the passage from which Michael Card, a Christian music artist, wrote a beautiful song called The Poem of Life. This is what you are now 
In Christ, you are his workmanship. And so Michael Card writes this song, the poem of life. Life is a song we must sing with our days. A poem with meaning more than words can say. A painting with colors no rainbow can tell. A lyric that rhymes either heaven or hell. We are living letters that doubt desecrates. We're the notes of the song of the chorus of faith. God shapes every second of our little lives and minds every minute as the universe waits by. The pain and the longing, the joy and the moments of light are the rhythm and rhyme, the free verse of the, the poem of, of life. We are, says Paul, God's workmanship. Now, this is wonderful because the passage you might remember begins with us walking in darkness, uh, but then you've got but God in the middle of this passage, and at the end of the passage, it talks about us walking with the Lord, walking in his ways. This is what, this is what God does, you see. That's how, that's how we start, walking in darkness, Now, at the end of the passage, after God's grace to us in Jesus, by grace alone, uh, we are walking in his ways that he has uh, preordained for us. This is the work of God. So, there's no boasting because he receives the praise. Uh, No one's staring at the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci, you know, there in the Louvre Museum in France. No one stares at that museum and says, oh, you know, that woman named Lisa... Wow, she was some artist. Follow me? No, no. Beautiful painting, uh, but the praise goes to da Vinci, the one who himself created this work of art. God has done it. We are his workmanship. One last throw that, though. And it's found in verses 7 through 9. It's basically this. The Bible tells us, God has saved you by his grace, if you are saved by his grace, so that, the Bible says, in the coming ages, verse 7, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us here that in days to come, years down the road, Uh, The purpose of God's amazing work of grace in your life is so that in the coming ages, in the days to come, uh, that you might more and more, that I might more and more and more might see the the immeasurable riches of those grace, that I would more and more uh, see the the heights to which he has taken me in Christ uh, so that I might more and more praise him for his work. Did you know that, that? The Bible says one of the things God wants to do is constantly remind you and me and write upon our hearts that we've been saved by grace through faith and all this is his gift to you in Christ Jesus. I find that pretty amazing. I think the Bible seems to be saying here that, you know, this is why God has saved me. That he might from now on, day by day, that I might grow in my understanding of, my knowledge of, my grasp of, my love for, appreciation for, amazement at, wonder at, thankfulness for, gratitude for, uh, the gift of God's grace. Dead in sin, God makes us alive so that in the coming ages, more and more of those immeasurable riches of His grace would be known to me as I walk in His his ways. That sounds pretty... That sounds pretty exciting to me. 
don't know if you've ever tried to measure something with a measuring tape from your garage and you go to measure it, you pull out the measuring tape and uh, it's not long enough. Ever had that? Oh, that's so frustrating. You gotta go to Home Depot and get another one. Immeasurable riches, the Bible says, of His grace. There's no measuring tape at Home Depot or Lowe's fit for the job. No fish finder has been invented which can plumb the full depths of His grace. There's no telescope in New Mexico that's been invented which can penetrate the skies to such an extent that would possibly search the heights of God's grace. There's no microscope so powerful that can uh, dig down into the last possible particles of the riches of His grace. Uh, They are immeasurable, and that is why you must keep uh, coming back. Back again to the Word because of our sinful nature you know as well as I that we lose our amazement at grace. That is why the church is reformed and has always been reformed according to the Word of God because God is too big. And His Word, His Word is too deep. His grace is too amazing. Jesus Christ is too glorious and majestic for us to ever fully grasp the height, the depth, uh, the width, and the length of God's love for us and grace to us in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that's what the future is for. God wants you to know more of the immeasurable riches of His grace. You and I will never know the Bible the way we should. We will never know all there is to know about Jesus and the grace of God as we as we should. You know, as Paul would say to the church in in Corinth, they thought they were pretty smart, they thought they were pretty rich in knowledge, thought they were pretty wise. No doubt the church in Corinth would have said, well, who needs reformation in Corinth? We are just fine the way we are. And the Apostle Paul said, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Oh, there's more to know about the grace of God. So in closing, listen to the great Dutch theologian and statesman, one time Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Abraham Kuyper. While standing firmly in the line of the Reformation and Luther and Calvin, Kuyper had an eye to the future because it's not good enough to remember the past, to rejoice in the present. We must always consider the future. God has good works prepared in advance uh, for us to do. Always coming back, always learning more about His grace because He's got a work for us to do. And Kuiper was commenting on a a verse later in Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 15, which says, As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And this is what Kuiper wrote in his book, Pro Rega, for the king. This readiness, said Kuiper, in and of itself necessarily includes the care you must take for the future of your offspring. Nations recognize more and more that they can have a powerful army only if they train their youth for military service beginning in their first years at school. The same applies here, and even more so. To live most spiritually yourself, said Kuiper, but to leave your children untrained and unarmed, and as a consequence, unprepared, is spiritually, says, egoism. That is, that is, you're only thinking about yourself. What about the generations to come? This is why, he says, an increasing number of people among us, said Kuiper, recognize that only the schools that carry the banner of our king can prepare the youth 
for the struggle of life. You deceive yourself entirely if you imagine that Satan only casts his net around adults. He begins with the children, and he would like nothing more than that your children grow up without being taught about the struggles that await them later on in life. If you do not arm your children or train them for the battle they must fight for their king, Satan will not shrink from arming them himself and training them for the advance of his own unholy kingdom. Is there, said Kuiper, not already much evil among our children? The sins of children are no less dangerous than the sin of adults. That you do not fall short in readiness is not enough. You also have the duty to cultivate that same readiness among your children. Your king did not include only you in his ranks, but also called out to the little children, let the little children come to me. You stand firm, says Kuiper, and prepared only when Satan sees that you use your shield to protect your offspring as well and are already preparing them for the day when you will no longer be with them and when they themselves will be called to ward off the attacks of Satan and of his demonic spirits for the sake of the honor of their king. For the sake of the honor of the king. That's it. See? Reformation then. Reformation now. Reformation always. For the sake of the honor of the king. The church is reformed and always being reformed according to the word of God. For our good and for his eternal glory. Maybe so here. Maybe so among all God's people. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, for your word, Lord, this glorious passage that we must always, always, and always come back to, to be shaped uh, by these words. Oh, Lord, we confess that though we have seen so much of your grace and goodness and mercy, Lord, we can come to a place of worship and, and be ho-hum and uh, just a, a normal a normal time out at church, never giving thought to you, never giving thought to grace, never giving thought to our sin, never giving thought to the, the wonders of salvation. Oh, Heavenly Father, keep us from such sin. And then, Lord, help us to know that it's not only about us, but that it is about the generations to come. That they, too, would be thankful for the heritage which we have, that we would remember who, who we were as the church, that, that, that there was darkness, but you brought light. You brought us back to the gospel, back to your word, that we might pass that word on faithfully to the generations to come. And, oh, Lord, we pray that in our life with you, we would never forget the depths from which we have come. But God, rich in mercy, great love with which he had loved us, made us alive in Christ so that we might no longer walk in the darkness, but that we might walk in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to have that witness as a Presbyterian church finds its roots in the Reformation called Sovereign Grace. Oh, Lord, may the lives of your people here reflect then that amazing grace to all those around us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.